Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 46 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 46, we are going to recap the meet that was the awesome first district meet at EBC this year and talk about all the cool stuff that happened therein. We're going to do a review of materials from a memorization perspective for Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. I have some exciting CBQZ updates in terms of both technology, but also in terms of silliness. And as you know, from listening to this podcast, we are all about promoting silliness. So uh, definitely want to be sharing that sort of stuff. And then back to our Umbridge dialogues carrying on from last, uh, well, I guess it was two weeks ago, whenever it was, uh, episode from a couple weeks back or so. And speaking of which, why there wasn't an episode every week, because that's sort of our goal. Uh, blame it on Griffin because Griffin's voice is terrible. So this is, this is the beauty of what happened right before EBC. So EBC quiz meet is going to start on a Friday and the Tuesday immediately prior. And it was actually towards the afternoon, uh, afternoon, evening on Tuesday, I got sick and I got sick like hard like really not good, like coughing and sneezing and serious sinus problems and like didn't sleep for like 24 plus hours because I felt miserable uh, and all that kind of kind of good stuff. And fortunately, uh, huge amounts of orange juice and sleep and all kinds of other stuff. And f- I was able to get healthy enough that basically by I think Friday morning, Thursday evening, I think I was kind of like, yeah, okay, I think I'm good. And I, I think I'm healthy enough to go to the meet. Um, but as you can tell from my voice, I am still in, you know, Darth Vader mode, I guess. So anyway, um, Scott's voice is really beautiful because he has a new internet connection. And so, of course, he's in super NPR mode, which is awesome. So, um, yeah, there's that. All right, so uh, talking about EBC, uh, so apart from the really awesome quizzing, um, Scott, what were kind of your thoughts about, I mean, obviously you were away and didn't get to really experience all that much, except from a statistical perspective, uh, running all, all of our statistics remotely, but what were some of your experiences with the EBC meet? Well, it was interesting being a statistician because I've never been the statistician before. And so whenever I quizzed, we never knew what stats were at the end of prelims uh, for individuals. And so it it was really interesting for me to see um, how the averages decline after prelims for everybody. And um, this is a little bit in the weeds, but this is why we're here, I guess. But for prelims, I have all of the individuals in a big list, but they're all in bib order and in team order. So I can easily find them and make sure I get all the stats in correctly. But for semifinals, because I wanted to see how everyone's averages were changing, I sorted everyone by their current average. And then I put them, put in new averages as they came in. Um, and so I could see how a certain quiz either dropped a quizzer down or moved a quizzer up. And there is a lot of shifting regardless of which bracket you are in. And it just shows that, um, you get tired on Saturday afternoon and the quizzing gets more pressure filled and often more, um, tougher competition. And, um, yeah, it's, I like how a quiz meet has many different kind of parts to it, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, I particularly loved the, uh, you know, you had this Google Doc, uh, well, I guess it's called a, a Google Sheet, um, a spreadsheet in Google Drive, uh, where you were updating the data live. And so it was really fantastic to be able to have that sucker open on my laptop in the on the officials table in room one and see data filling in for it in real time. I just thought that was the coolest thing ever, especially from a, you know, just from a pure stats and schedule perspective to know kind of who's in what order and what position. That was fantastic. (coughs) There was one particular point. uh, I forget exactly when it was, but there was one particular point. uh, I noticed a particular quizzer who was sitting behind me and she's in the upper tier of, of quizzers. And I had just looked at the team roster and noticed that her team, I think this was, I don't know, halfway through brackets or something. No, 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 no. This was still in prelims. Now, this was on Saturday and it was still in prelims, but it was nearing the end of prelims. And we were on a break uh, between, I think it was 
it was during a, uh, during a timeout, and I I leaned over because I wasn't a, really an official at the table. Uh, I wasn't really on duty. I was just managing uh, meat level sort of things, and I I motioned to, for her to come over, and I just pointed to my screen and showed her that her team was currently uh, in second place uh, via prelim scoring, and I, she thought that was the coolest thing ever. Not just not that her team was in second place, although she was happy about that, obviously. Uh, more that she could see that you know some like two thirds of the way through prelims to be able to see where her team stacked up was pretty awesome. So I like, you know, maybe in the near future, this idea of, of maybe uh, making that more pub, that, that spreadsheet in a read only fashion, more public so that everybody can kind of see the stats as they progress along. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. One of my mini gripes about internationals was um, they always showed the team scores probably on about a two hour delay uh, just alphabetically by team name and running total score. Um, but there's never a case during prelims at internationals where every team has been in the same number of prelims. And so you basically have to keep your own stats if you want to have any idea. You have to copy it from the board if you want to have any idea where you actually stand. <laughs> and so it was fun that I could just put in a little average column um, for the PNW prelims and always have it sorted by that. So if one team has had four and one team has had two prelims, I still have a decent idea um, of whether of who's ahead and who's not. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I mean, to be fair to internationals, I mean, they have this big dry erase board and, you know, somebody from the stats room has to go out and manually edit it, edit it and so forth. And, uh, you know, with our, you know, fancy schmancy technology, we can do it in real time, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, I certainly don't want to present anything that's going to distract quizzers away from sort of mentally preparing. But I think that there is uh, kind of an exciting motivational factor to be able to have to be able to have that sort of stats material live. Yeah, I think it can be cool. Well, final stats are available on the pnwquizzing.org website. And uh, let's see. So uh, other things that happened in the meet, we had interesting delays. So basically, there were three segments to the meet. There's the Friday segment, Friday evening segment, Saturday morning, and then Saturday afternoon, basically coming back from lunch. And Interestingly enough, all three of those segments were delayed, but for different reasons. So Friday, we were delayed by oh, like 40 minutes, 45 minutes or something like that, because one of our teams uh, was traveling up uh, from a, a great distance. We have several teams that travel from a great distance, but one in particular got stuck in really, really bad traffic for well over an hour uh, and so they, uh, they still, they made it like about 40, 45 minutes late. Uh, so that got us started late on Friday. And then, uh, Saturday, our devotional speaker went a little bit long, got excited about his material. And, uh, so we got started a little bit late Saturday morning and then Saturday afternoon, not all the teams returned from lunch promptly. So we had a little bit of a delay kind of getting started there uh, after lunch. But it turns out uh, it worked out reasonably well, despite the fact that we had a couple of extra quizzes thrown into the mix. We ended up finishing, I want to say it was like around 3.40, 3.30, something like that. It was definitely well before 4, before we finished up on Saturday. So I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, that was, all. I guess I'm, I'm just a harsh person because I was always starting quizzes pretty quickly after lunch. Um, I believe I have started a quiz without a team, but uh, that was quite rare. And it seemed to be about 60% of the meets, I had to either text or whisper to the um, meet host that their devotion speaker was going long. Yeah, I was um, I was out front Saturday morning uh, and was uh, out doing kind of front of house kind of things and getting stuff organized for the day. And uh, I noticed the speaker was trailing up to the uh, uh, sort of the cutoff point and I didn't step in and I probably should have uh, come to think of it. We were a little bit uh, EBC is a special meet uh, because we don't have lunch provided by the host at EBC. So I had a little bit of, uh, you know, grace room for, you know, teams who went out to grab food and then turn around and come back and weren't able to get back to the church in time. So. Eh, yeah, I probably should be a little bit stronger of a stickler for some of that. Obviously, traffic is, you know, beyond uh, anybody's control. So there's that. Fortunately, at the meet, we had a surplus of officials, which was really great because my voice was utterly shot. 
uh, and I would have been an, a horrible uh, quiz master, much more horrible than usual. And uh, so it was great. I didn't have to officiate other than just doing meet running things and so forth. And John uh, was there a little bit late, so I had to do one of the, the first announcements. But then he was uh, fantastic at doing all the other announcements, which was great because then my I could save my voice and not make people feel really uncomfortable trying to listen to me. Um, we didn't do a particularly good job with cycling officials because we're sort of not used to having a surplus of officials. So we, um, there were a couple of officials that we had on standby sort of subs, uh, that didn't get much of a chance to sub in. And I need to do a better job of managing that. I think a lot of times we have just, we kind of squeak in and have just barely enough officials. And so the idea of saying like, oh yeah, we actually need to manage the officials and say like, okay, you need to take a break now so this other person can have an opportunity is not something used to, but it's a great problem to have. Uh, I just need to do a, a better uh, job about that. But the big news uh, from the meet, this was the first time that we had adult quizzing or the adult quizzing league. Uh, by all accounts, as far as I've heard from feedback so far, uh, it was a huge success. We had six teams uh, competing in two different divisions and the adult quizzers did well. And there was some fantastic cheering from the youth quizzers during the adult uh, quizzing uh, quizzes. We had just two. Uh, both of them on Saturday, I think one in the morning, uh, uh, bracket and one or not bracket, but one in the morning schedule and one in the afternoon schedule. Uh, and the hearing the cheering from the youth quizzers, uh, was, was awesome. There was one point, uh, Cuddy is one of our quiz masters and, uh, Cuddy's been doing this for longer than I have. And, uh, she usually when calling people's names in her room, she'll kind of look at them and say, you hun, uh, sort of like her signature phrase instead of saying the quizzer's name. And so, of course, uh, when a, an official, or sorry, not an official, when an, an adult uh, quizzer jumped and got a question or something, somebody, there was a group of quizzers in the back that were chanting that person's name, except when Cuddy got a question. And when Cuddy got a question, they all started chanting you hun, which was just awesome. Um, I, I, it was just, it was a fun camaraderie and a fun support sort of thing. And Cuddy actually, unfortunately, didn't get to hear it. She was so focused on what was going on with quizzing. She didn't hear the cheer until afterwards. And at dinner, I told her, oh, like, oh, yeah, they were cheering you. They were cheering you with you, hun. And she thought that was awesome. Uh, so it was a, it was a great experience. That's cool that you had 17 people quizzing. Um, I think it's fun for the current quizzers to see, uh, people quizzing. Yeah, that was one of the that feedback. Sorry, go ahead. People that are just normally like their coach or, you know, um, there's probably at least over half, maybe even three quarters of the people, um, the quizzers have never seen them quiz before. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, very much. And some of the, some of these, uh, coaches, former quizzers are really good quizzers, uh, you know, really, really good former quizzers and still highly motivated to study, which is fantastic. And so being able to see that in your coach and being able to cheer them on is a, is a fun thing. And even, and yeah, you know, if you're a coach who doesn't have that background, don't feel daunted by it. It's still a lot of fun just to go up there. And even if you can, you know, jump and get a question or two, that's a huge inspiration to, I think the quizzers who aren't the 90 level quizzers, who are the ones who are, who are fighting to get one or two questions. And if you go up there and demonstrate that, yeah, this is possible, it can be done. I think that's a huge motivator uh, to everybody within the program. Yeah, it's very awesome. Well, so moving on, uh, chapter five, uh, what are your thoughts about chapters five and six? Well, chapter five was fun for me because I think it's, is it the shortest chapter or is chapter one is the same number of verses. I don't know what is sh actually shortest as far as words, but I would always try to see if I could quote chapter five as fast as I could. And you can do it in under a minute. Um, and it follows a lot of the same patterns as we've seen so far in Hebrews, there is a very good mix of unique material. So there's global unique words scattered throughout, tons and tons of chapter unique words, and very f there, there's a handful of um, possible chapter verse reference questions, but really not a ton. And so in a 14 verse chapter with only four PNW key verses, this is a an awesome chapter for someone to memorize um, with references that maybe hasn't memorized. 
uh, the whole material or whole chapters with references. I think it's very doable. And if you do that for this chapter, you can get any question type on this chapter, which I think is really, really sweet. Yeah, it's a fantastic chapter to, to memorize in full. Uh, chapter eight is very slightly shorter, but five is still a very, very short chapter. Uh, and there's a, some great opportunities here. Verses uh, eight and nine in particular, a two, uh, quote these two verses question, son, a uh, great way to start that. I would definitely be memorizing that uh, five and seven uh, standard uh, key verses. Uh, definitely a lot of material here. It's very great to get into. The um, distribution of unique words is fairly uniform. Uh, there's not like a clump of them. There isn't really a dearth of them across the set of the verses. So a very easy, well, not easy, but um, there aren't a lot of surprises that jump out at me from chapter five. How's that? Can you say that again? There's not a lot of surprises that jump out at me from chapter five. No, um, and you're right. Chapter eight is one verse shorter, but I find chapter five to be much easier to memorize and remember. Um, there's just, there's a lot of, I guess you could call them slam dunk questions. You know, like in verse seven, you see he offered up prayers and petitions. Uh, he offered up prayers and petitions with what? Fervent cries and tears. There's just, those are great multiple answers with lots of unique material in them. Um, in verse 10, the order of who is not the greatest, um, chapter verse reference because the order of Melchizedek is a very common phrase. And so asking the order of who isn't testing a lot. Let me see the order. Well, in the order of Melchizedek is definitely a, you know, Cuddy, if, if she's listening is going to be in jumping up and down that, you know, cross reference to come back for that particular phrase. Yeah. There's five, there's six times that the phrase in the order of occurs and five of them are Mel Melchizedek and one of them is Aaron. So I would definitely, well, this is interesting. I'm going to jump the gun on chapter seven, but in chapter seven, it says one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So you cannot write a single answer chapter verse reference in the order of whom Aaron, um, that would be my ideal chapter verse reference to write because it's kind of the different one and it would test the, does the quizzer know that this is the different one? But you really would just have to write it there as a chapter verse reference multiple answer. And then the rest of the in the order of Melchizedek's are, in my opinion, not the greatest tests because it's a very common phrase and quizzers might be able to guess it even if they don't know what verse they should be quoting from, if that makes sense. Yeah. On verse 11 from chapter 7, you can't really do a multiple answer in the order of though because of the not rule, right? Um, I, well, I think because of the, the way that it's ordered, I think it, it would be valid. Maybe. I mean, so you're saying because it's in the order of not Aaron instead of not in the order of Aaron, but I mean, I don't know. That just seems, I agree with you. I think the whole not rule is kind of silly, but I mean, in keeping with the not rule, it's hard. I, I don't know. I can see a challenge coming up on that one. If that, if that question does get written. Yeah, I think. I think you could definitely could challenge it, but I think it would have to be very well worded because, again, um, I know you don't like conventions even if they're understood, if they're not written down, but question writers very commonly will write multiple answers, especially reference multiple answers, just on verbatim text, even if the question doesn't really make sense with the two answers. You know, sometimes it's just on two random phrases, one at the beginning of the verse and one at the end of the verse, but it's just the same wording, you know? So it, we just make it a multiple answer. Even though those two things don't go together at all in the verse, perhaps. And so similarly here, you can kind of put on blinders and see in the order of Melchizedek and then in the order of Aaron um, and just ignore all the other content around it and write that multiple answer reference question, you know? Yeah, I can see the argument. I can see the argument. Um just another, I, I, the vagary of it being valid or not, the vagueness of the validity, how's that, definitely leads me toward hating the not multiple answer rule even more than usual. You could say what order, because then you're just asking about the orders and not implying um, in with the preposition. Mm, yeah, okay. I could see that. Even still, though, the not in there, I mean, I think it's one of those technically correct, but I think it could be uh, a little on the missing side. Sure. Uh, it could be, but I think, um, yeah, what order to me would be a lot clearer because you're just saying, give me the specification of order and we're not 
we're not saying like when it happened or if it did happen or anything else about it, you know, no verbs here. Right. So then that's the, that would be a multiple answer chapter verse reference question, order of, it would order be of what whom. you could do order of whom, or you could do what order. Yeah. Both would, probably order both of be, whom I think would be easier, well, a little more straightforward, but yeah. And yeah, cause when I'm writing questions, I, I try to not artificially start them with, uh, the interrogative word, if I can help it, even though when it comes down to it, I would accept what order and order of whom as, as correct. Um, but I like the way that order of whom flows, um, especially since you're going to be reading the start of a, of a CVR a decent amount of the time. Right. Indeed. And then in chapter six, chapter six is a good chapter. It's got 20 verses. I'm actually surprised that it only has five, um, key verses. Um, yeah. I remember I aired on chapter six when I had a 90 once. I remember that very clearly. Um, this one has definitely some good reference questions, like in verse four, what is impossible? Um, that's a very classic one. God is what from verse 10 is a good one. So this one, um, yeah, a lot of these chapters are very similar in kind of quizzing content in that there's a really good mix of unique material and they're going to be pretty memorable. And so it just means that if you're not specializing in a specific type and just memorizing the material, your burden um, in how well you memorize it is going to be higher this year than it is in other years because the material is relatively easy compared to other years of quizzing. And so more people are likely to be like you um, in their knowledge of the material. So in Matthew, you don't need to nail every single word, word perfect, to do well at quizzing if you know full content, even without references. But in Hebrews, if you know full content kind of well and no references, it could be easy for you to not win a whole lot of jumps. So um, if you are, even though the material in general is easier, it's still a great idea to learn a specific chapter really, really well rather than two chapters kind of 80% well. I wonder if there's an analogy to cycling or maybe I, I think of cycling because I, I did competitive cycling in high school, but I mean, I maybe there's, you know, to sports in general where there is a not lower bar, that's not really the right word, but where that where a race course in cycling, let's say you have various different races. Some are multi-stage, some are over, you know, mountainous trains, some are, uh, sprints and time trials and that kind of thing. Time trials are usually fairly short, you're, uh, measured in minutes, uh, and they're, and they're very fast and you're sprinting the whole way. And so, and so generally when you have a shorter, simpler course to, to ride through the measure of competition or the, 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 the spreading out of the competition is much narrower than in something like a mountain, right? So, uh, I, for when, when I was in cycling, I did pretty terrible at, at sprint stages and time trials. I was, I was horrible at time trials and I tried really hard not to be, but it turned out like I would always be in the bottom half, like in, or, or in some cases been dead last in time trials. But for me, mountain stages were, like I loved mountain stages because I didn't necessarily have to be like super on my game the entire race. I just had to not give up. I just had to keep going and sort of persevere through the struggle of, of climbing over the mountains. And I, I wonder if there's something similar in quizzing, something analogous to the idea of like shorter material is certainly it's easier to prepare for, but you have to prepare to such a greater degree that quizzing on it is actually, uh, in terms of, of being able to nail questions with the competition, ends up being actually a little harder. That's interesting. I definitely know that in competitions, the easier that you make it, the more people you kind of bring into um, relevance is a really harsh harsh way to put it. But you basically decrease the potential the possible variance of results, right? Um, if every single quiz question was a one-word, unique word question, well, a decent number of people would probably be able to get 90s. But if every single one was a quote these three, well, maybe no one would be able to get a 90, right? So it just kind of shows um, those are two scenarios where everyone knows the material the same as they do in the other scenario, and you're, you, know, you would have wildly different results. Um, and so... 
Yeah, it, I think it can be harder depending on what your preferences are in quizzing. So like if you really enjoy interrogative questions and you want to do well at internationals on Hebrews year, you have a pretty tough go of it because a lot of people are just going to push the pace to a syllable and a half. Um, conversely, if you really like chapter reference questions, you may be much less affected by the shorter, easier material in Hebrews year than someone else. Yeah. You do have to you do have to be smart about how you go about studying, and you see this in either how well you know the material, or if you know references, or what question types you're good at. It is almost always the I think it is always the case that if you can be the best at something, um, that is way better than being above average at everything. It's it's way better to be the absolute best at one thing, even if a couple things you're just not competitive on. Yeah, especially and especially in a mixture with, uh, you know, if you have different levels of special, not levels, different areas of specialization, that can be especially. Yeah. I am dismayed that verses one and two are not a verse, verse block. Um, those are some of my two favorite, uh, like the, the tail end of five, chapter five and the beginning of chapter six are some of my favorite passages of scripture, uh, in the new Testament. Um, it, well, and I suppose even verse three, I mean, you'd almost want to link one, two, three all together there. Uh, there's some great, uh, great meaning and great instruction and great kind of going on in just one and two. That's a little sad, but that being said, there's some other great uh, stuff in here as well. Six and or seven and eight, of course, just beautiful poetry uh, and really meaningful stone right. Yeah, and I think verses one and two not being key verses in PNW, you can kind of theorize reasons that that would have happened. Um, it could be that they work so well as three verses, but that's not allowed. That it kind of lessens how well they work as just two and. Um, it's not necessarily like we're saying, does this exceed some objective bar for a key verse? It might be we're shooting for a general percentage of the material to be a key verse, and this one just felt a little bit less key than some other material elsewhere that is key, you know? Yeah, totally, or, totally. Or maybe, like, this isn't the case with this verse, I don't think, but there are times where two verses are in different places but are saying more or less the same thing, but each of them are very, very, like, key and significant. Um, but when we're setting our, our key verse list, we may just pick one of them and not double up on, um, in essence, the same thought. Yeah, and it be, I mean, becomes key in terms of uh, unique material. It becomes key after the first word, I think. Or maybe not. Uh, certainly becomes key after the second word. But um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And there's again, yeah. There's almost twenty verses that start with therefore, but there's all, this is the only one that starts with therefore let. Yeah. And, and that's for, that's not a that's not that's not a reason to select it or not select it. I know that some people don't like to select key verses when they see that it's going to be a really tough finish the verse, but we're just trying to pick verses that we think are the most significant. Um, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And in, in fact, I, I kind of like the variety of uh, finished verses where, you know, is it key on one word, two word, four words? Uh, there's something to be said for having a variety there uh, so that if you, uh, you know, you can be a little bit more careful about your finish the verse jumping uh, and not expect to always jump on, say, two syllables, you know, to be able to be ready to jump really fast, but then hesitate when you have a therefore starting it out. It's certainly important to be uh, important, important skill to have your, in your tool belt. Definitely. Well, and similar to chapter five and six, there's a fairly even, uh, you know, uh, smattering of unique words, maybe a little bit stronger on the keyword number than a few other chapters, but otherwise they seem to be fairly evenly distributed, uh, which is great in terms of key ability, uh, ease of the material. There isn't like a whole swath of non-unique word material that you have to slog through words. So those are kind of nice. I kind of like using unique words as kind of anchor points uh, in memorization, uh, as well as like, you know, sentence breaks are another great way or, or commas are another sort of great anchor. Well, any other ideas? I don't think on I have anything else to add. All right. Well, no, so no, not really. C CBQZ. So CBQZ, we have some updates. So uh, I had promised, threatened, warned, I'm not sure, something, uh, that Princess Bride material, reference material was coming, and it is in fact here. 
It is loaded into see now, and theoretically, as, as long as I've coded things correctly, everyone should have access to the Princess Bride uh, screenplay as reference material. And yes, indeed, it is marked up with unique words and two-word key phrases and chapter, quote-unquote, uh, keywords or unique words. And so I, I should mention what I did about that. So scenes in Princess Bride, there are scenes that are like one line long, and there are scenes that are like 50 lines long. So what I did was I took scenes and I grouped them fairly logically, um, or at least from my perspective, fairly logically, into chapters. And I think, for, I forget exactly how many chapters I ended up with, but each chapter is roughly the same size with, you know, with great hand waving. They're roughly equivalent in size, and they are roughly breaking at sort of normal scene break where you would sort of expect breaks to happen in material. Uh, but they're fairly arbitrary, uh, so the that only really comes into play when you talk about writing questions uh, for the material, especially like, say, chapter uh, reference questions, which can be a thing. But, of course, nobody knows what the chapters are because it's The Princess Bride. So, anyway, I've been going through and actually writing a Princess Bride question set, but as you can imagine, this is, like, my lowest priority action item of all of the things that I have on my action item list. So it's going to take me a very long time to get done. Uh, but that being said, if you have some free time and you want to help write some Princess Bride questions, let me know and I will uh, share the question set with you and we can work on it together. And uh, I would certainly appreciate the help. I've only made it through chapter two of, I don't know, exactly 30 something chapters or something, or maybe 25 chapters of Princess Bride. So it's going to be a long time to through. Uh, there's, of course, no such thing as C-verses, so I've just been looking at, like, what makes a good quote or finish the verse question, and obviously, and that's the sort of the other thing, um, I have been writing quote questions, which makes absolutely no sense, because nobody can possibly know references, so some of this doesn't really make a lot of sense <laughs> in terms of the material, I've just been sort of working through the material in the same way that I would work through uh, regular uh, quizzing material, uh, Bible material. And so I've been writing reference questions and quote questions and so forth, just like I would normally write for any other material. And I figure even though that makes absolutely no sense and we'll probably have to have those questions deleted at some point in the future, I figure that's probably better to stick with it that way so that I don't reprogram my brain and have to sort of switch back uh, to a different program uh, when I come along later. But anyway, that's there. Uh, so... You know, Scott, you want to you want to write some Princess Bride questions? Yeah, it makes me want to write more trivia based questions, which I know is not going to be allowed. But uh, like I'm looking here, and you know, can you name the two different places that Six Fingered Man is referenced? You know, as such, and I think stuff like that can be fun for people that are really well, really knowledgeable about the movie. Yeah, the trick, of course, then is going to be like, how do you, how can you possibly know what chapter I'm referring to? Because, you know, I just arbitrarily made that up. Um, so correct, which is which is why I would need it to be asked like in a more trivia, you know, so like, oh, everyone probably will remember the six fingered man is referenced um, during the duel. Right. Right. Um, and so they could give the the context, even though. No one would know that that's chapter five. Um, and so, but so I think it could be fun. Maybe not, I don't know how much it could be fun in a competition manner. I guess a lot of the interrogatives and finish the verses could be cool. Um, but in a more informal manner, just being able to search the material and ask questions like that, I think could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, obviously interrogative questions are really straightforward uh, and easiest uh, sort of thing. So, you know, in my version of, of Princess Bride, chapter two, fetch me what that picture, you know, um, and I, even just saying that I, you know, I even I seen in my head of like, yeah, fetch me that pitch so forth. But then, of course, like if you're going to there's quote questions like quote Princess Bride, chapter two, verse nine, They're like, well, OK, that's kind of silly and meaningless and doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but then, like, a finish the verse uh, question could be, that day she was amazed. And then, it, like, the rest of it just sort of follows, right? Uh, and people kind of recognize where that comes from and may not be able to get it, you know, uh, word perfect, but at least certainly be able to, to jump in there. So, I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We, once, I, once we get a few more chapters written up, then um, we'll probably do some practice quizzes with it just for fun and see what happens. Sweet. 
Well, let's see. Uh, some other CBQZ news. So I had mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that I'm uh, undergoing a complete rewrite of the system and I've got the core backbone scaffolding now complete and I'm working on framework solidification this week. And what that ultimately means is I'm setting up a system where there can be full cross-user integration for all of the different sort of components that exist in quizzing. So what that would mean is on two separate laptops, if you have an answer judge on one laptop and a quiz master on another, the answer judge will be able to see the quiz master's questions on their own screen in real time. You know, so uh, the way things work right now as, a, as an answer judge, you open up the material uh, view and then you kind of glance over at the quiz master's view and you see like, oh, okay, the, you know, he's about to ask, you know, a quote question on Princess Bride Chapter 2. So you can quickly look up Princess Bride Chapter 2 and, and that sort of stuff on your computer. Uh, instead, in this new version, hopefully out sometime over the summer, uh, you won't have to do that. Like the quiz master's questions will actually appear in real time on your screen and you can just follow along with what's going on there. Similarly with scorekeeping, the way the system works right now, really the quiz master is the only person who can enter scores uh, during a quiz meet uh, in terms of like, like tracking scores within CPQZ. That's going to change. Similarly, like you could have a scorekeeper log in and pull up a uh, score sheet for a particular quiz and say, I am the scorekeeper for this quiz and enter that data on behalf of the quiz master. And then of course the quiz master can see that auto updating on his or her own screen in real time. And so that's kind of the goal. Uh, ultimately all stats and related data can be downloaded, but I had a question that I want to kind of pose to everybody and mostly to Scott. Uh, but the question is, should a specific question, like the full text of the question, be downloadable once connected to a scoring event? So in other words, let, let me back up for a second. So right now in CBQ, if you're running an official quiz as a quiz master and you're like, you know, uh, Billy Bob jumps on question number one and it's a finish the verse, uh, Princess Bride chapter two, verse four. And he jumps on it and he gets it correct. And you say, okay, great, correct. In CBQZ, CBQZ is recording the question that the person got, like, and whether they got it correct or incorrect. And of course, you know, it was on question one in this particular quiz. And all of that information is look upable after the fact, right? So if you are a member if your user account is tied to, say, P&W in terms of the district, you can log into the stats area and go to that particular quiz and look up question number one, and it'll say, okay, Billy Bob got the question correct, and it was a finish the verse, and it'll have the reference of the question, uh, which, of course, in the case of a finish the verse or a quote question or something, is becomes obvious what the question is. On the interrogatives right now, it only has that it is an interrogative question and then the reference of the interrogative, and then, of course, whether they got it correct or incorrect. Well, all of the data is still in CBZ in the background. It's just not currently downloadable. And I was thinking, well, okay, just make it all downloadable. The idea of, of being able to say, like, I want to actually see what the interrogative question was on question number five that, that I got an error on, you know, on quiz 17 or something like that. Um, but of course, then comes into that question of like, well, is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Uh, what, do you, what do you think? Um, are you talking about like competitively versus um, all like, of the uh, above. computer resources? No, not computer. Well, well I computer think... resources is easy because I mean computer resources. I mean, it, I, I can. I, I'll make it work. It's more. It's. It, is it a good idea in terms of the confident? I don't know exactly how to phrase this. We we keep the official question set confidential, even though I genuinely don't think it matters. Um, but we still, you know, as a practical matter, we don't share the official quiz uh, questions with the broader district. The officials keep those confidential. Uh, so theoretically, if you're willing to go through the effort, you could look through all of the questions asked and sort of formulate what all of the questions in the, you know, question set were kind of, but not really. Yeah. So I don't think it matters. There was definitely a time where I thought it would, and I was very protective over, um, those competitive advantages, um, both when I was a quizzer, but also when I ran the district. Um, but to me, the real value comes if you know, the total finite question set and you can know um, perfectly like the, this is the only multiple answer that starts with this word 
versus being given a list of a hundred multiple answers and knowing like, oh, all of these exist in the set, but I have no idea. I don't know for sure. Like, oh, this is the only one that starts with it or, you know what I mean? Like that's to me the biggest value of like getting a whole question set. But if there's a quizzer who wants to like go question by question and pull out what the question and answer was for something, I mean, first of all, I don't think many people would do it. The people doing it are probably the ones who are already scoring very high already. Um, and merely knowing more of the quest, like more of the questions that are in the set to me is a very negligible advantage, if anything. And if someone wants to really study those, then to me, that's a form of study, which we should be encouraging. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I mean, it, it, I agree. I think it's almost like, you know, if it's in addition to memorizing all of the material, then great. But like, like, I don't think it provides you an end run. And then at the same time, I mean, realistically, you could have a coach with a tape recorder recording every question uh, that's said in every room and then transcribing them and then providing them to their quizzers. So, I mean, it doesn't really, you know, preventing it in the app doesn't really prevent in theory the practice of recording every question that's said at a meet. Um, it's just that, you know, I, I think coaches don't do that because they're doing a thousand other things of greater value. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it was an interesting idea. One thing I do want to remind folks about uh, when it comes to CBQZ, even in its current form, is when you are at a meet that is using CBQZ in all of the rooms and the quiz masters are marking the quiz quizzes as official quizzes, which we do in P&W, and I'm not sure if they're doing that. Um, actually, I know they're doing that in at least a couple other other districts this year. Remember that under the stats section of CBQZ, there is a meet status page, which will give you a view into all the rooms that you have at a particular quiz it'll it'll tell you like what rooms are quizzing what question they're on what quiz they're on the teams that are in the room and the scores that that the current score you know uh, up to that moment for that particular room which is really convenient if you're you know uh, maybe 10 questions away from a, a quiz where you're supposed to quiz in you can look at the your you know, let's say pull it up on your smartphone and just kind of watch it trail down from you know 10 11 12 all the way down to 20 and be like okay great it's time for me to head to the room uh, that way you don't necessarily have to be standing, you know, two feet outside the entrance for 10 or 15 questions waiting for a quiz to start. You can kind of keep a track of how things are progressing uh, on your smartphone or as you're progressing through and, and both as a quizzer and a, as, as a coach. You can tell me if we don't have time for this level of detail, but I'm curious when you say you have the backbone scaffolding complete of CBQZ, like what sort of rewrite you undertook, you know, like is each question result still going into a relational database and being saved over the network question by question? Or did you do something to make it more real-time and resilient? So I made it more real-time and resilient. So um, basically what I'm designing... So so is there a relational database over the internet, uh, you know, at a stored, a stored central location? Yes, absolutely. The data is still getting stored uh, in, in that sort of a universe. However, I've I'm designing... Uh, in, is still in the process of doing this. The scaffolding is is sort of the skeleton upon which I can build the framework that does this. But essentially, the idea is once you load up C in your browser, you could, you know, let's say you get to a quiz meet Saturday morning, and the first thing you do, do is you plug in your laptop, you get a good Wi-Fi signal, you load up CBQ, and then the internet goes out, right? You can run the entire quiz meet. Uh, without any problems in CBQZ on your laptop in your browser, just so long as you'd never close your browser window, um, you, you can literally never have your your internet come back, and you'll be able to run the meet. Now, there are some things that you lose in that process, like you lose the status page that I was talking about, you the scoreboard projector, you lose the ability of having, say, your answer judge be able to see your question in real time, you know that kind of thing. If the internet goes out. Uh, but in terms of you as a quiz master, just being able to progress through a quiz, uh, you'll be able to run that just fine. And then, of course, if the Internet, if Wi-Fi comes back at any particular point, then everything starts syncing up again and everything works fine. So essentially what would happen is, let's say you're in the middle of a quiz, you're on question five and Wi-Fi goes down. You just keep going. 
and let's say Wi-Fi comes back on 15 and then everything starts working, right, uh, 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 beyond your computer. So if you have a scoreboard projected, the score would just basically freeze at question five until the Wi-Fi came back and then it would just jump to wherever you happen to. Be. So that's that's really what the scaffolding lets us do is it puts it allows us to put a lot more of the functionality bedded in the browser rather than having to go kind of back and forth to server to the server. Now, there's still can there's still communications that go back to the server after every question for that real time kind of uh, communication loop. But if those go down or get blocked, it's not the end. So if every quizmaster loads up um, CBQZ to start a meet and then internet goes down, well, I mean that will affect question counts, right? Because yes. no one's able no one's able to say like, oh, this question was asked because CBQZ can't communicate to other rooms. So like, how do you? I mean, do you have to? kind of quote-unquote pre-generate and save a bunch of quizzes like up no, like for each you don't you just run the risk of the same questions being asked right so sure let's say gotcha. you've got you, yeah so let's say you've got 100 questions and you've got you know 10 questions need to pull out of those 100 and this, this of course is that's probably the wrong order of magnitude let's say it's a thousand questions and a hundred questions to pull right um, with the, with communicative connectivity and see, you can ensure that the, that like room one's 100 questions and room two's 100 questions will not overlap. Uh, but with non-connectivity, there is some Venn diagram where there's two, where those 200, uh, question blocks will overlap to some, uh, across the two rooms, across the, you know, question set of a thousand. Makes sense. Very cool. All right. Well, so... Umbridge dialogues. So we had talked last week about financial profit in Bible quizzing, and Scott, you had not last week, whatever, two weeks ago, whenever our last podcast was, um, mm -hmm. and you had basically, uh, you know, Adam Adamed me into the idea of like maybe I should be okay with profit, uh, and you're. I wanted to redux on this idea just a little bit because I had a kind of a thought after, after the fact. So your compelling point to me where I started to change my mind was the idea of saying, but if there is a profit incentive, you can encourage multiple people to play in the same space and compete against each other with differing solutions such that if one solution provider retires, goes away, gets hit by a bus, whatever, uh, there is an alternate to jump to. So am I, am I fairly stating your, what your idea was? Um, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I would like to, so I was, I, my mind started to shift because of that. I, I was a fairly compelling point, but then I was thinking afterward, but what about open source? or the concept of open source when it comes to any sort of service delivery. So, I mean, open source obviously, you know, originates the idea from computer software, uh, but taking the idea of open source and uh, taking it beyond the confines of just software, but to designs or systems or processes, processes that are beyond the scope of just software. So what if there were... Uh, somebody was, would it, would it not be better to say I could create CBQZ as a closed sourced system and charge money for it or create it as an open source system and train others, at least to some degree, to be able to support the software in the event that I get hit by a bus? I think that's good, but I think you're going to, within any group of people, there will be a range. Um, and I'm not like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to say it better, but I think like in the past there was quiz equipment that was provided pretty poorly because someone was the only supplier, but I don't think it was from a place of being morally bankrupt or anything. It was just, well, I can do a little bit of work and make a decent, like some amount of money. I, I have no idea how much, um, and just had no other motivation to improve. Right. And so that might be the close to the lowest one might expect for someone providing materials to um, a quiz program. Cause I know that there are, there's at least one provider of like study books and um, those kinds of paper materials. And as far as I've heard, people have been very happy with the quality and have not felt gouged over the prices. Um, so that might be a definitely a step up. Um, but I think it would be unreasonable to expect someone, especially making software to both open source it, not charge for it, and 
train people because like take CBQZ, it's open source, but I still think it would be very daunting for anyone to just adopt it without like you around. That's very true. But I mean, that's why I'm, I'm starting to train people and, and I mean, it's going to be a slow process and, you know, part of the rewrite that I'm doing also is trying to write a whole lot more documentation so that, you know, if I get hit by a bus, somebody else can take it over and can, can at least maintain, right? But I mean, I, I sort of the, the, the counter argument, and I'm still not really swayed on, on this. So it's sort of call it pseudo umbrage at this point. But like, would it be okay for coaches to charge their quizzers for the service of providing coaching? Or would it be okay for a district uh, coordinator to charge the district for their service? And I think, I think we would say, well, no, you should just, this, it's a, those are volunteer positions, like, like just volunteer. Similarly, like, it, it seems to me like if I'm going to be supporting Bible quizzing with software or with material lookups or something like that, like, if I have costs, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like it, I, I have to eat those costs. But if I am able to provide something at no cost, then it, I almost feel like there's, there's a, I ought to, does that make sense? It's sort of like, you know, a, a, a coach or a district coordinator or any sort of leader, you know, is it going to incur expenses, but we can either, you know, expense them to our churches or to the district or something like that, or we can write them off on our tax, something like that. Um, similarly, it, it seems to me like, you know, in, in, in developing materials or software or hardware or something like that, if there's a way to be able to do that at no expense, that's, that's better than added expense. Like, I, I, um, so like your, your hardware example, right? You were, you were stuck with one particular hardware provider who didn't do a particularly good job, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I would argue if there was an open source, quote unquote, way of building uh, that equipment, that physical physical equipment, so much the better, right? Like, like um, somebody could like, like, and, and this was something I, I had actually dabbled with for a while. I am not an electrical engineer. I've always found electrical engineering fascinating and would have loved to actually learn how to do it. But I, I had dabbled at one point with the idea of designing a seat system and actually building it and then putting those plans together and open sourcing those plans, essentially publishing those plans so that anybody anywhere could say like, okay, here's an instruction manual for like, you know, do step one, do step two, do step 17. And presto, you have a quiz, uh, a seat set, right? Wouldn't that be better for everybody, right? Because then it's like... Um, if, if somebody's willing to build that for you and charge you a little money for it, fine, so much the better. Uh, you can choose that. But if their service and if their support level drops below a certain threshold, you can just go to the open source solution. Sure. I think that's great. And I mean, I think any community would be blessed if there are talented individuals in that community who are providing services and goods for far below what, what the market would bear. Right. But I wouldn't as a member of any community, I would not want to either expect that from others or, um, I don't know, get too spoiled with it. Um, so I think it, it's very helpful if people are always thinking about what is open sourced and what is easily reproducible um, versus not. Okay, fair enough. Well, so moving on to the next Umbridge Dialogue topic, this one is a little bit more interesting, I think, maybe... So it's around the idea of prohibition of Bible quizzing, which sounds bizarre, but the idea that somebody would prohibit participation in Bible quizzing. So in other words, the question, going back to our dialogue, Socratic dialogue method, is it okay for anyone in authority, whatever that means, like what kind of authority is that? Is that a parent? Is that a coach? Is I mean, it wouldn't be a coach, but is, you know, is it a, a parent? Is it a pastor? Is it a, you know, somebody else? Any, is it okay for anyone in authority to prohibit participating in Bible quizzing? So some examples here, uh, which again, strike me as bizarre, but these are real. Um, a pastor doesn't want his local church to participate in an interchurch ministry, uh, maybe out of fear that the interchurch ministry will distract from local ministries, that the pastor wants more folk like that. Or a pastor doesn't want his youth uh, participating in an extra church ministry, or specifically quizzing, uh, perhaps not wanting to support, uh, you know, programs that are beyond the confines of, of the local ministry that the pastor wants to focus on. Let's say that there's a, a youth program that he wants to focus on, and uh, he fears that quizzing being an 
inter-church program will distract people from focusing on building up the, the local church movement. Uh, or a parent prohibits quizzing, uh, prohibits a child from participating in quizzing in favor of, say, sports or some other activity. Now, this gets into some murky waters when we say, well, some other activity could be scholastic, right? So, you know, where where do you define that line where between, you know, if, if somebody is if a if a youth is particularly into quizzing but their grades suffer i can see the argument of saying yeah you can participate in quizzing but you have to keep like a certain grade level average or above otherwise no we need to focus more on on school similar to to sports you know like you can't you know uh, try out for the baseball team if you don't have a certain you know scholastic average in school that that sort of so um yeah, that's sort of the general idea. Scott, are, what are what are some of your initial thoughts? Well, I think parents can do whatever they want for their own kids. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that was really part of your the main thrust. But I don't know. It, it seems weird for pastors to prohibit stuff like this. But my experience has always been pastors are pretty. If if something was either um, not chosen by them or they don't understand it, either of those things, there seem to be pretty. Um, opposed to any activity within a church um, and Bible quizzing would fall under those because it's rare that um, a pastor both has chosen to do it and is knowledgeable about it. Um, so I don't, I'm, I guess I'm mystified by it too, but I'm n no longer surprised by it since I don't know, pastors often seem basically hostile to Bible quizzing. So I don't yeah, know. And, and as a pastor myself, this is something that deeply baffles me, and I, I don't understand it. There, there are several things about pastoral culture. So I just sort of, um, I don't know, uh, tran full transparency here. So I am an ordained, I can't talk. I am an ordained pastor who also sits on the board of directors for the Pacific Northwest Association of the Church of God, Anderson. So a, a community of 48 churches, uh, 47, 48 churches in the Pacific Northwest, the greater Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm, I'm actually the chairman of the board that oversees that sort of organization. I'm also uh, ex officio by, by uh, nature of being the chair of that board. I also sit on what we call the Credentials Committee, which is a Pacific Northwest Association board of people, uh, a committee of people that essentially reviews pastors desiring or, or, or pastoral candidates, people desiring to be pastors. And we evaluate them, we work with them, we mentor them, we bring them through a process and eventually bestow upon them the title of pastor. And of course, we're not the ones we, we, you know, legally speaking, we're the ones who, who ordain, but we say and believe devoutly that God calls and God ordains. We're just recognizing God's call on the pastor. And there's a lot of uh, theology and belief that, that goes behind that, that, you know, I, I don't want to dissect and go into. But anyway, with that being said, like I, because of the nature of those sort of roles that I have, I have a, say, a few viewpoints into the mindset of the collective pastorate, let's say, in the Pacific Northwest, granted a very, you know, slice of it, right? Not the whole breadth of it, but my particular slice of it, I have a pretty good, you know, view of it. And there, there are a lot of things that kind of confuse me about some pastors, but m mostly this is something that kind of goes beyond that, right? So like, why do pastors burn themselves out? We we have a, a lot of that, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, we have pastors who work 80 hour weeks for a couple of years, burn out, and then have to quit because they just, they can't keep going at that sort of level. And so we're talking about, you know, working with pastors to try to encourage them to be like, let's, let's find a, a, a sustainable level of work that you can do, uh, you know, and, and certainly you always want to give more and help more, but let's be sustainable uh, and so that you provide more over the longer term. But what really baffles me, and, and this doesn't really happen in my association, but I've, I've seen it happen with, with a lot of pastors around, is, is exactly what you're talking about. This thing of, I didn't come up with the idea, therefore I am, I don't like it, right? Now, I can totally understand a pastor not coming up with an idea and being ambivalent towards it. I can totally understand that, right? So, like, I'm totally excited about quizzing, and I go and I talk to a pastor who never heard of quizzing, has never seen quizzing, and I don't do a particularly good job evangelizing quizzing, and they're kind of like, well, Griffin's really excited about this, but 
I don't know, he's kind of a weirdo. Um, I'll just sort of nod and smile and back away slowly. Um, I can totally understand that point of view. What I don't understand is the hostility um, where a pastor will be like, you're suggesting something that is outside of my congregation and I, I want to prevent that from happening, right? So like an, an analogy of this would be like, would we consider it okay for a pastor to tell his congregation to stop attending a Bible study group because that group wasn't under the umbrella of his authority or like the church's ministry uh, uh, umbrella? It just seems like I can't comprehend that. Um, and I mean, you, you even mentioned, Scott, you're, you're saying like you've encountered as more the norm rather than the exception pastors being hostile to ministries that are outside of their control. Right. Yes. And I mean, when I was district, I'm like, I have no experience as a pastor or, you know, having any sort of authority within a church. But when I was district coordinator, I knew that any topic that came up, I immediately thought of like, well, I need to make a decision about this, but what precedent does it set? Right. Like, what are the implications for the future, not just about this specific decision, but about future decisions that may be similar enough? Right. And so I can I can see maybe a pastor has that experience with um, things happening within the church that don't don't require their time. But over time requires some amount of their time merely because they are the pastor of the church. And even if it is decently negligible, it adds up to an already, um, you know, precious time schedule, right? Um, right, right? And I don't know. So, I mean, who knows if there are things like that at play. But in general, I get the sense that it's like, an, I don't know about this, and I'm not going to, you know, and it just ends there, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I've encountered a lot of pastors, I mean, a lot of pastors who just sort of be, are, they, they don't understand quizzing, and therefore they don't really support it, they don't do anything about it, but but it's sort of a, it's a non-action sort of thing, right? And that I totally, completely understand, right? Like, if you if you haven't seen quizzing, you've only got this crazy griffin standing in front of you, you know, telling you about it. I totally understand the the notion of saying like I don't get what you're talking about. I have to focus on the twenty other things that I'm that are really important that I need to get done before lunch. Like I totally understand that. What's bizarre to me is the idea of, of taking it a step further. So it would be the equivalent of like you know you're a pastor and somebody in your congregation comes up to you and says, "Hey, you know me and three other folks in our congregation." have discovered this really cool online Bible study group uh, that we, you know, participate in on Tuesday evening. And like, to me, as a pastor, my thought would be, cool, you know, yay. Um, you know, and they might say, well, hey, can you join us? And I'd be like, no, I, I can't join you. I'm already like way over allocated. I can't participate. And and I can totally understand that. And then they're they're saying, oh, well, you know, can we tell other people in the church about it? And like, okay, I guess, right. But I, and then the pastor may not really do anything about it, you know, may not take any action, Ida, you know, action toward that or, or in any way. I can understand that sort of non-movement perspective, non-actions, uh, non-position of uh, for the pastor. But then for a pastor to sort of like go 180 degrees from that and then say like, no, I need all of you Tuesday people to quit what you're doing because we're going to start a Bible quizzing or not a Bible quiz. We're going to start a Bible study group, you know, Sunday afternoons. And I want everybody to show up to that one and not the Tuesday thing that you guys are doing. That blows my mind. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, it baffles me too, but people just really like control over stuff. So if they don't have control over something, they would rather it not happen. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's a good lesson. I wonder if there are things in quizzing that we do that we really like to maintain control over. I've always been a big fan of like, try to get as many people to contribute as possible. But then by doing that, by encouraging people to contribute, you have to give them some level of autonomy and control uh, over the thing that they're contributing, right? Um, so like CBQZ is a great example, like last year and the year before you were the district coordinator and I wasn't, and I was building CBQZ and it was like, 
you know, you didn't tell me like, stop doing that. <laughs> right. Um, like you didn't tell me like, no, you can't use CQZ or something like that. Like, like you were, you were always very supportive and there were, there were times where like you'd come up with an idea and I'd be like, that's a cool idea. And I'd implement it. And other times you came up with an idea and I didn't like it. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to implement it. And here's why, you know, kind of stuff. And we'd have the back and forth and the, you know, positive disagreements, uh, so to speak. Right. But there was never a time where you were like, well, I'm district coordinator and we have to do it like this. Like, like I, I exert my control over you, Griffin, that CPZ has to be a particular way. Right. And I would suspect that you never felt that you needed that control. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know how else <laughs> so, to respond. And I just had no need to have control over it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, why would you? Right. And that, that's, I guess that's the thing. I don't know. I'm, this is something I feel as a pastor and as a, as a, you know, quiz director i'm i just have huge umbrage over this like like i don't understand why pastors of all people would be acting the most unpastoral like uh in this way it's bizarre to me but anyway i don't know because i'm i mean i heard there were different sorts of like different church programs had different sorts of financial setups right so sometimes the church kicked in some budget sometimes the church kicked in no budget um i heard of different ways that people tried to recruit quizzers i heard of different um, requirements for being a member of a, of a quiz team. Some um, there's at least one program where you, there was a minimum number of verses you had to memorize each week to to stay on the team, right? So all these things are variations that perhaps I could have said like some of these are a little bit, you know, I might want them to be a little bit different. But for the most part, unless something was either very detrimental to the Bible quizzing program as a whole or detrimental to a different church program. I would just let individual church programs do whatever they want. And then as far as the leadership structure of PNW, like if people had roles, um, unless I thought that decisions that were made were like very detrimental to Bible quizzing, I wouldn't feel the need to do people's work for them or tell them, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It just seems like you're setting yourself up for more work. Right. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's the, maybe part of the pastoral burnout problem that we have in the Pacific Northwest is somewhat related to an unwillingness to let other people take control of things, right? If you have to be in control of everything that a hundred people are doing, uh, that's a, that's a way more than a full-time job. Um, so yeah, I can sort of see that all kind of going downhill very quick. And it might be hard as a pastor to try to, I guess, quote unquote, play the long game where if there are like biblical church activities that are happening, then maybe isn't your first priority or you would have rather pick something else, but they're happening and someone is leading them. It's probably generally better in the long run to endorse them as best you can um, within normal pastoral oversight um, just to keep a, um, you know, kind of, as you said, a, um, a feeling of engagement by everyone within the church. Well, that's it for our Umbridge stuff for today. Uh, so as, of course, with anything uh, in any podcast, if we have said anything that you disagree with, we very much want to hear from you. And of course, if we've said things you agree with, we want to hear from you, too. Uh, the best way to reach us is via email. You can email us at iq at c.org. So iq for inside quizzing at cz.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will bid you all adieu. And thank you all. And thank you, Scott. Thank you, Griffin. See you all later. Mm -hmm.